33. So, yes, flattening the curve. One of the phrases that's really burst into use due to the coronavirus pandemic. We're told it's what we need to do when infections are on a sharp increase. If you imagine that graph globally still on a very, very almost vertical rise. But if we could put that onto more of a horizontal angle by flattening the curve, it would obviously indicate a slowdown in the increase in infections. Let's dig deeper, though, with the man who drove public awareness of this idea, Professor Drew Harris, a population health analyst at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, joins us on the line. Good morning from Seoul. Uh, Good morning, and thank you for having me on. So can you just take us through a few weeks back now when this idea came to you that you shared publicly? Well, the idea of flattening the curve is an old public health idea. It's basically the the idea we want to control the number of cases that occur in a given period of time. Remember, what those curves represent are essentially new cases that get added upon each other. And the more new cases that are occurring at any given moment, the faster that curve is going to rise. And then the other curve, which is a little more flat and more attenuated, is going to be about protecting the capacity of the system, because when the curve goes up too quickly, it's going to overwhelm. And all you need to do is think about a subway car in the middle of a rush hour, and everybody's trying to get on the car at the same time. There's just not enough room. Well, that's the high peak. And if instead we spread the number of people who show up at rush hour over a longer period of time, then everyone can get on the car and get the seat that they want, as opposed to being left on the platform. So flattening the curve could apply to all sorts of different graphs and and trends, but it's been about a month since you first tweeted about the importance of this approach with regard to COVID-19. What sort of impact have you noticed since then? I've certainly heard world leaders talk about flattening the curve, as well as many ordinary people on social media. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased that people are starting to speak the language of public health and understanding the need to actually prevent disease as opposed to waiting to treat it after it occurs. So from that perspective, I'm very happy. Unfortunately, I think the lesson has not been fully learned by many countries that the need to intervene early to prevent the spread of the disease. Your country has done an excellent job of flattening the curve. You've identified those cases early on. You prevented them from contacting other people and spreading disease. You've traced where all the people with the disease are and who might have it, and you've addressed it right away. Uh, Other countries waited till people got sick and didn't do enough to prevent the spread. I've been looking at other countries in this region, uh, other locations that might also have been severely affected, like Hong Kong, for example. And it does seem like the common denominator is memory of the past, but also mass wearing of masks. Uh, Would you say that uh, masks are an important part of flattening the curve? And is that a big problem Um, for countries that don't have many masks? Uh, that is a problem for many countries. I think masks do are part of the solution. We need a layered approach. Masks are one part of it, preventing people from uh, spreading the disease, especially if, if they're sick with it. Wearing a mask, uh, you don't and remember with coronavirus, you don't always know that you have it. So wearing a mask will prevent you from, from spreading it. But there are other things that are also important, social distancing, just keeping people separated from each other physically, as in six feet or not even being in the same place, or in terms of time, making sure that people go to work at different times so there's not as many people crowding together in the same spot. So masks are part of it, social distancing is part of it, and contact tracing 
policy. Many other things are all part of the response that are necessary to flatten the curve and prevent the spread of uh, this virus. Right. I I mean, because if you are, as many people here in Korea are, trying to still go about some semblance of normal life, uh, we're not seeing the same level of social distancing here, I would suggest, as as we're seeing in countries that have uh, already been very sorely affected by this outbreak both in terms of overall infections and death toll. It's helpful to have whatever means are available at the disposable, like, for example, masks. Um, Would you say that we need to see more stockpiling of these things in the future for pandemics uh, and, and, and learn now from everything here and find ways to set that into law from the United States to across Asia, for example? Yes, absolutely. I think that this is an unfunded liability. It was out there. We Many people knew about it, but the most important people who, who decide the government budgets were not putting the resources towards it. And I think you know, in South Korea and other Asian countries, your experience with SARS was a lot closer and personal. And that taught you a lesson of the necessity to be prepared for a disease of this kind. And uh, here in the United States and in Europe, well, we didn't experience the same kind of, uh, of an incredible rush and demand on a healthcare system that was overwhelming. So we were sort of nonchalant and cavalier about this whole idea that a disease could cause so much disruption. So I think of, uh, of preparedness and uh, stockpiling of resources as a really good insurance policy against the possibility, or in many cases, the inevitability of another pandemic. You also wrote uh, an op-ed under the title Flattening the Coronavirus Curve Goes Way Beyond Science. Can you elaborate on some of the points there? Yes, I think when you look at the high peak curve, that's because people are not complying with social distancing, are not doing what they should be doing in order to protect themselves and others from the disease. So you're going to see essentially an out-of-control epidemic. Flattening the curve is everyone working together collaboratively. And if that means everybody wearing a mask when they go outside to uh, prevent the spread of the disease, great. If that also means uh, we're going to stay home if we're not feeling well, if that means an employer is not forcing an employee to come into work when they're not feeling well, these are all the things that we can do collectively. And so this disease, unfortunately, is being used by some people to tear us apart, to build walls and barriers and to uh, accuse nations of not doing their job to, to stop the spread of the disease and uh, implying that it's somebody else's fault when the disease begins to spread, as opposed to recognizing this is a global opportunity for all of us to come together to fight uh, a deadly threat from, from, from beyond, essentially. And speaking of the future of this curve, Perhaps it would be counted as a new curve if there's a a second wave. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been quoted in the last few hours as as suggesting that uh, COVID-19 will continue or return in the fall. Is that something that you share as a a main concern at this point? Absolutely. Um, These diseases uh, typically do come back multiple times. We've seen that with flu pandemics. They, they tend to come back until essentially the pandemic, the virus itself, doesn't find anyone to infect. So what happens is um, it comes through the first time and maybe 50% of the population might be infected. It comes back through a second time and the other 50% could become infected. And until we get enough people who are immune to, this, to the disease, to the virus, either because they've had it before or because we have a vaccination, it will come back, which means we have to be ready to put out the hotspots when they occur. 
And I'm suggesting that uh, essentially follow uh, South Korea's model of let's find those people before they begin to spread the disease. So we don't have to say, tell everyone not to go to work. We identify those people who have, who are likely to have the virus, and we tell those folks not to go to work, get the care they need, and we trace the people they've come in contact with. That's the more intelligent way of, of fighting an epidemic. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Fauci, of course, is the one who's been advising President Donald Trump, um, just to clarify for people who are not familiar with his name, whether or not President Trump's been taking all the advice uh, maybe is uh, something that's up for debate. But President Trump has extended for another 30 days through April 30th the social distancing guidelines in the U.S. Now, from a medical point of view, of course, it's it's great to see people taking this seriously. But do you also feel that this is actually a time for a multidisciplinary approach to consider the impact on the economy, to make sure the cure is not worse than the original problem? I have. If, you, if you're thinking of the cure as preventing the spread of the disease, uh, um, I think that that cure is, is, is always going to be better than uh, not curing. And so I don't buy the whole idea that we have to, um, it's a choice between lives and livelihood. That's, I think, is a, is a false choice there. Because even if we did let people go back to work because we need the economy running, and more and more people get sick, you're still going to have tremendous uh, fear and confusion. Some people will not want to go to work. Some people who may be healthy and not too worried about disease are afraid of catching it and bringing it home to a loved one who might have cancer or an elderly mm. relative. So we cannot... We cannot stop this early because it's only going to make the the death toll that much higher. And I'm I'm truly offended that some people feel we need to sacrifice lives sacrifice lives in order to save the economy. The economy, mm-hmm. we have the resources. We should be funding people's livelihoods, keeping them in in place so that they're not winding up without food and not winding up without shelter. And we should be able to do that. We have enough resources in our society to, to accomplish that. And to make the choice between one and the other is a false choice. Yeah, I understand totally. And especially for people in parts of the United States who may have enough uh, resources to hold on. I, I guess there are parts of the world, though, that are affected by this outbreak, and perhaps even parts of the U.S. where the gap between lives and livelihood is a little too close for comfort. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if they were to go for a prolonged period without any income, it, it could put lives at risk. Uh, and, and Oh, absolutely. And does, does, the I mean, US, you know, does the U.S. have to readjust, in other words, its health and welfare models during this time, at least temporarily? Absolutely. I think government has to step in. Essentially, think of it as we're paying people to stay home from work. That's the, that's the bottom line here. Your job now is to self-isolate, to, to quarantine yourself within your home so that you can't spread the disease. So we're essentially, the government is replacing everyone's salary, should be replacing people's salaries so they can do that. We're in this state, unfortunately, of having to have this mass disruption because we didn't intervene early enough. And again, I cite South Korea as an example of where you may not have to do that to an extent because you have figured out who has the disease. You have mass testing protocols in place in a way that we don't have here in the United States. Why do you think, by the way, the US has seen so many cases uh, when we look at the confirmed infections at more than 160,000, a burst forth of more than 17,000 in the last few hours, 
and total deaths approaching 3,000. And, and then we look at um, next on the list, it's, it's Italy, uh, which was up until re- fairly recently the, uh, the global centre of this. How has the USA, do you think, overtaken so quickly Italy and risen so far above anyone else? Well, I think it's a fundamental failure of trust. Trust in our government and in our public health authorities and the scientists and the experts to provide accurate information, not believing that those people are telling you the truth about what needs to be done. And unfortunately, for many Americans who are sort of being trained to not trust government officials, not trust their government, what their government says, and to be skeptical about any directive coming from the government. And when, you, when public health officials lose trust of the people, they're going to, there's going to be an adverse impact on public health. And so we really need to build, reestablish trust. And that starts at the top with our leadership. And when you have statements that are inconsistent with what the scientists and, and experts are saying, that are based on suppositions and just hunches about what should be happening by experts, by people who are not experts. Uh, this is a, a this is what happens as a result, and, and people don't know who to believe. Do I believe my leader, or do I believe the scientist who says that this is what's really going on? And when that occurs, this is why you see an incredible rise in cases because people don't and can't or won't follow the advice that is being given by the officials. Well. Everyone's become an expert on social media these days. A lot of amateur epidemiologists out there, at least, uh, who are at least partly citing work like your own uh, and and saying the right things with flattening the curve. But we should perhaps be cautious with who we listen to in the coming days and weeks. Um, Professor Harris, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Professor Drew Harris, population health analyst, Thomas Jefferson University.